0: All right, Uh, we're studying the revelation of Jesus Christ. As far as I know, there's no acupuncture in the tribulation. Uh, Chapter 13 is where we're at. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible or navigate on your device, Revelation 13 is our text. The topic, non-believers suffering in the tribulation will wonder after two charismatic men, but will read that they are energized by Satan and are therefore more like two beasts. The title of our message, The Beastie Boys. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. Uh, We've come here to listen to you, to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us as a church and each of us individually as Christians. Lord, if there's folks here that don't know you as Savior, they're here for your Spirit to draw them to Christ, to show them their sin and show... Uh, them the cross of Jesus Christ on which you died so that you could save them from their sin. And we believe that the work that must be done here must be spiritual. It's not a fleshly work, it's not a human work, it's not a work of oratory or words, it's a, a work of the Spirit of God operating on the heart of man. And so I pray, Lord, for the Spirit to have his way and have his reign in this place. Reveal yourself to us all, Lord, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. I got to say, I love Wikipedia. Where else can you search for deals with the devil in pop culture? I mean, that's a great search. So now some of the films you might recognize in that search, at least by their title, I'm not saying you've seen them because you're Christians after all, but uh, you might recognize these more recent films such as The Devil's Advocate, Bedazzled, O Brother, Where Art Thou, Constantine and Ghost Rider regarding their hugely popular song Bohemian Rhapsody Queen once explained that the song quote is about a young man who has accidentally killed someone and like Faust sold his soul to the devil television seems to love the selling of souls to Satan multiple episodes of the Twilight Zone are dedicated to it the Simpsons have at least two episodes along those lines I found this next one a little disturbing The Muppet Show featured a plot in which Alice Cooper attempts to sell the Muppets a contract that promises fabulous riches and worldwide fame on behalf of the devil. Several characters consider the offer while Gonzo fervently pursues the deal. Ultimately, Gonzo becomes frustrated at not being able to find a pen to sign away his soul. In the future tribulation, people will knowingly forfeit their souls by worshiping both the devil and the world leader we most commonly call the antichrist we won't be on the earth when the antichrist is revealed our text is about those who are left behind after the church is raptured does that mean there's nothing here for us except some information to satisfy our curiosity about the future hardly because as we work through the verses we're reminded that the devil even now incites people to worship him Satan asked Jesus to worship him in the wilderness temptation. If he went after Jesus, he'll probably go after Jesus' followers too, like you and I. Now I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, what are you being offered to worship the devil? And number two, how are you being threatened to worship the devil? Let's take a look first of all in verses one through 10. What are you being offered to worship the devil? The tribulation earth will want a hero but not the kind you would think the vast majority of earth's population will be weary of God's judgments but they will steadfastly refuse to repent they'll be looking for an alternative to Jesus Christ looking for someone to be their champion instead of Christ and in fact that is the meaning of the common name antichrist anti is a prefix that means instead of and so antichrist means instead of Christ let's meet him in our text. Verse 1, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head's a blasphemous name. The New International Version translates this, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. And so there's, it's not John, there was the dragon and then the beast. The dragon is Satan, And it is he who's standing on the shore, having been thrown down to the earth at the end of chapter 12. His final strategy is going to be to energize two men who will do his bidding for the last half of the tribulation. The first beast that we meet here is the Antichrist. We saw him earlier as the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse rode forth. It is his signing of a treaty with Israel that starts the clock ticking for the seven year tribulation. These verses tell us about his empowering by Satan near the midpoint of the tribulation. So he's been on the earth already for three and a half years as a world leader, but he hasn't taken control of the world's government, uh, and he hasn't been energized by the devil just yet, but we're going to see that in this chapter. Verse one went on to say he had 10 horns, seven heads, 10 crowns on his horns, And on each, he had a blasphemous name. Each of these symbols is gonna be defined for you when we get to chapter 17. Let me just give you a quick look at them. The 10 horns are identified as 10 kings who will be united by this one man. The seven heads are the seven hills of the city in which his power resides, Rome is universally known throughout history as the city of the seven hills. Thus, this is often thought to be a confederation of 10 nations or 10 world regions based in Rome ruled over by the Antichrist. And the seven heads also, we're told, represent seven kingdoms in world history. We'll get deeper into that when we get to chapter 17. I just wanted to let you know, like that we always do, that These symbols and signs in the book of the Revelation are always defined for you somewhere else. They're not subject or open to any interpretation that people might have. Uh, The Bible tells you what they are, and we'll see them in chapter 17. Now, verse 2. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Speaking of animals... The Washington Post published a chart of the animals that are statistically most likely to kill you. It's a very interesting list. It was of interest to me because, as I've told you many times, I am afraid of all animals. Microscopic animals all the way up to the Tyrannosaurus rex, if they're still around. I think they are, right? In some places in, in the Amazon or New Jersey. Uh, but anyway, so here's, here's the animals that are most likely to kill you. Sharks, alligators, venomous snakes, spiders are on the very bottom of that list. At the top of the list, bees, wasps, and hornets, undoubtedly because so many people are allergic to uh, their stings. Cows and dogs kill far more people than sharks and gators. Statistically, cows kill 20 times as many people as sharks each year. Think about that during Dairy Month. Okay, the King's Fair is a killing ground. You're better off going out and swimming off into the ocean with the great whites, statistically anyway. Now, the animals listed here as a little public service announcement that I'm just trying to keep you guys safe. The animals listed here are the ones that the prophet Daniel used to represent certain previous kingdoms of the world. The leopard was Greece, the bear was Medo-Persia, the lion was Babylon. All this is doing is telling you that the Antichrist and the kingdom he will rule is another in this succession of satanic kingdoms. We keep reminding you the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world. He offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And so as we get to the tribulation, the, the uh, world ruling kingdom at that time with the Antichrist is his last final attempt to rule the world. Now, the Antichrist is called the beast in this chapter. He actually has about 46 descriptive names in the Bible. 33 of them in the Old Testament and 13 in the New Testament. So he's a a very well-described individual. There's a lot of ink about him. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, the Antichrist doesn't have multiple heads, why then does it say one of his heads? Well, it's because prior to this event, he is only the ruler over one portion of a larger empire. He's going to reemerge from this deadly wound to take sole control of the empire. And so this is identifying him with his uh, empire. And at the time he's assassinated, um, it, it's considered one of the heads of that Confederation, He's gonna come back and take control of it. Towards the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will be mortally wounded but come back from the dead. The words used describe a violent death like an assassination. If you're still not sure that we're talking about a person who is assassinated and comes back from the dead, Revelation 17, eight says, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition and those who dwell on the earth will marvel. And so we're clearly talking about a person who dies, goes into the abyss that we've read about earlier in the Revelation, comes out of the abyss, rules for a while, and ultimately goes to what's called perdition, which uh, is another word for hell. Now, according to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 16, the Antichrist's arm will be permanently withered and his right eye totally blinded after he comes back from the dead. And and I wonder if this isn't in mockery of the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and when he did, he retained the wounds in his body. So at first I thought, well, what's the deal? I mean, what kind of resurrection is that with a blind eye and a withered arm? It it would make him seem weak, but in fact, it makes him seem more Christ-like because Jesus, our Lord, uh, retains in his body the marks of his crucifixion. You remember when Thomas was absent He didn't believe the Lord had risen from the dead. But the second time, a week later, when the Lord appeared to him, the Lord said, put your fingers in in my hands and in my side. Uh, Speaking of the wounds that he continues to bear as a reminder of his death on the cross for us. It is while the Antichrist is in the bottomless pit that he is completely energized by Satan. When he returns, he has supernatural abilities. Verse 4 So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? His restoration to life will inspire non believers to openly worship both him and Satan. The world will embrace their hero there instead of Christ. Verse 5 He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. 42 months is three and one half years. And as I said, this is the last half of the seven-year tribulation. He will be given authority means that while he seems to take control of things, God remains in charge and history will come to its prophesied end. You know, it's a little uh, devotional picture of your life. There are times in your life, maybe you're going through one nine one right now, where it seems as though something or someone else has taken control of your life. Uh, and things are not going as planned. You're not having the best time of your life because of some trial or some tragedy. But God remains in charge and all things work together for the good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purposes. We just don't always see all of those purposes or God tying all those threads together until after the fact. So hang in there. Uh, the Lord has your back. Verse six, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, to blaspheme his tabernacle, and to blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. First, he's going to blaspheme God's name. Maybe he's going to argue that God's wrath being poured out proves that he's a vengeful deity uh, not to be worshiped. I I can't say that for sure, but it makes sense because people say this today. Uh, You talk to people about God and they say, well, God allows too much suffering. He's a vengeful God. He's always you know, wiping people out. Second, he'll blaspheme God's tabernacle. Both Daniel and Jesus speak of the Antichrist going into the Holy of Holies and defiling the temple that he allows the Jews to rebuild. And so that will be a blasphemy. And then third, the Antichrist will blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. To me, that means he's gonna be all about the here and now, inspiring non-believers to be materialists who care mainly about their present satisfaction. And so he'll have some kind of a message that says, you don't want to follow God because you don't even want to go to heaven and sit on a cloud forever and play a harp. You want what I'm offering. You want This is the only game in town, and I can give you riches and wealth and power and all of these kinds of things. It's the old lie that you and I can be as God. And, and so we don't need God. We don't need his heaven. We'll create our own. And so all of these are blasphemies, uh, Instead of Christ, you have this man. And so verse seven, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. For a time, the Antichrist will seem to succeed in his war against God as God's earthly people are overcome. It means they're gonna be killed. Martyrdom, however, is never a defeat. It is the ultimate victory of faith in the face of opposition. You know, the Christian life, at some point, you're gonna have to realize and embrace that the Christian life often looks like a life of weakness and humility uh, to onlookers. But in that weakness, Christ is revealed as strong, and in that humility, uh, you are exalted and lifted up. Things aren't always going to go our way as Christians. And and it it will seem many times as if the world is gaining advantage and having the victory, but all the while God is working out his purposes. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now it is the writing of the names in the book of life, not the slaying of Jesus on the cross that happened from the foundations of the world. If you get the grammar properly according to Greek scholars. And so uh, their names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world or before the world was created. John Walverd says of this, Some references to the book of life seem to indicate it is the book of the living, namely of all born in the world and that those who do not eventually trust in Christ are blotted out from it, leaving only those who are saved. The simplest explanation here seems the best, namely that their names were written in the book of life from eternity past. This was made possible by anticipation of the future dying of the lamb on their behalf. And so, what Walvert is pointing out, and what is true, we believe, is that when uh, everyone who has ever conceived is recorded in the book of life or the book of the living and is potentially saved by the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible goes on to say that He is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And so, potentially, everyone who has ever been born uh, could be saved, but only those who actually believe are saved. And if you die, having rejected Christ as your savior, your name is removed from the book of the living. And when that book is opened before the great white throne judgment of God at the end of all time, uh, and your name is not found in it, then you'll be cast alive into the lake of fire. And so that's how these books work. Verse nine, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, you probably recognize that phrase from earlier in the book, but immediately notice a significant difference. In the opening chapters, over and over again, you read, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The dropping of Spirit and churches is one more indication that the church is not on the earth during the tribulation. You have to account for the fact that the church is not mentioned after Uh, chapter five until chapter 19. For the entire time the tribulation is described from chapter six through chapter 19, there is absolutely no mention of the church. And this phrase uh, is very interesting uh, in its elimination of those extra words. Will anyone have an ear? Well, yes, the tribulation is a time during which multitudes are saved. We just saw that there will be a lot of martyrs. These are tribulation saints who are killed. And so multitudes will get saved, but they will face martyrdom. And that's why evangelists like to say, if you can't live for Jesus Christ now in the age of grace, how are you going to die for him then in the age of wrath? In in other words, quite honestly, it's easier to be a Christian now than it will be during the great tribulation uh, when you will face martyrdom. Verse 10, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. This comes as a chant of victory. You can almost hear it on the lips of the tribulation martyrs. As the agents of the Antichrist capture them and sentence them and execute them, you can hear them say to their persecutors, He, meaning you, who lead into captivity shall go into captivity. He, meaning you, who kill with the sword must be killed with the sword. In other words, they're being led captive to slaughter, but they have the hope of Jesus Christ and eternal life. Their persecutors do not. Does that seem harsh? Well, in the tribulation, by the time these believers are being martyred, it will be too late for their persecutors to be saved. The agents of the Antichrist will have already sworn their irrevocable allegiance to him, as we'll see in a moment. John adds, here is the patience and faith of the saints. Their patience is the certainty that Jesus is coming back. Their faith is faithfulness to live accordingly and to accept whatever earthly fate befalls them in light of their eternal future. It's a great little, I hate to use the word formula, but it's a great little formula for uh, thinking about your Christian life right now patience and that is the the looking for the return of jesus christ not in his second coming but in his return to resurrect and rapture the church which could happen at any moment that is the patience of the saints and our blessed hope and as a result of that we want to be faithful to live in the light of that imminent return no matter the cost Now, Satan is going to get what he wants, and that is worship, by giving non-believers what they want, or at least what they think they want. They want to be left alone in order to sin. Earlier in Revelation, we read, this was back in chapter 9, remember God is pouring out wrath trying to bring men and women to Christ, and it says, though, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the work of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood. And they did not repent of murders or sorceries or sexual immorality or thefts. And so they refused to repent in the face of God's judgments and God's uh, grace trying to draw them to Christ and to salvation because they want to continue in their sin. They don't want to give up this list of things that they're doing what is the devil offering you because that's you know, this is what he's going to do but this is what he did to Jesus as well and this is one of his strategies is to offer you a deal maybe he's offering you happiness I've encountered a lot of Christians over the last few years last several years whose defense for many many behaviors that are non-biblical is that they weren't happy and God wants them to be happy or that they wanted to be happy and uh, many marriages have broken up uh, because one or the other spouse said I wasn't happy and so I sinned, I got away from my husband, I got away from my wife, I went with another man, I went with another woman and now I'm happy and it's nothing less than the devil offering a, a, a way out that isn't biblical And in a sense, it's a way of worshiping the devil. It's a way of following him rather than the Lord. Maybe it's more possessions if you'll just lie or cheat or steal. Maybe it's something from the list I read, sexual immoralities or thefts or sorceries or whatnot. Believe me, the devil is offering you something or someone. It's what he does. He wants to deal with you and every Christian. He wants to tell you that you'll still be a Christian Everything will be all right. God's a God of grace. Yes, you'll be sinning in this one area, but once you're through with the sin, you can just repent of it and you'll be better off. You'll be happy. And it's all a way of getting us to disobey God. If we're not worshiping God, that void is filled by the devil. You, You know, the devil doesn't come to Christians and say, will you worship me? How about you just bow down right now? He did that with Jesus. He wanted to cut right to the chase get right to it, because he knew who Jesus was. But to us, he doesn't say, will you just please worship me? He offers these little incentives, happiness, wealth, possessions, power, those kinds of things. And when we directly disobey God in order to go in that direction, it's no, nothing less than the worship of the devil. Resist him to the shedding of blood, even to death if necessary, Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Remember that you could see Jesus at any moment and you want to be faithful to hear him say, well done, my faithful servant. Now, verses 11 through 18, how are you being threatened to worship the devil? Besides giving folks what they think they might want, the devil threatens to withhold everything they physically need and to kill them. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. Another beast means another of the same kind. The Antichrist, it said, rose out of the sea. Uh, Scholars think that's a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. If so, it simply means the Antichrist will come from that part of the world. And so scholars argue about his descent. Remember, there's like 46 different descriptions of the Antichrist. And so some say he's definitely a Gentile. Others say he's definitely a Jew, Many say he will be European because Daniel says he descends from the people who destroyed the temple in the first century. And those people were what? Romans. We tend to forget, however, that the Roman Empire spanned far more territory than Western Europe. Titus, the general who led the legions against Jerusalem and his legions, they were not Italians. They were Syrian. Uh, and, And so it could be, that the Antichrist is of Syrian descent. In fact, there's a scripture in the Old Testament where he's called the Assyrian. And so there's a lively debate among scholars who look at all 46 names, try and figure out, is he a Jew, a Gentile, Eastern European, Western European? Uh, It hasn't been settled and it won't be until he's on the scene. We don't care because we won't see him revealed. We'll already be in heaven. Now, the second beast comes from the earth, I'm sure that's a clue to his origins, but I don't really know what it means, except it tells us he definitely is a man and not a demon. When you read some of the things he's going to be able to do, you might get confused and think he's a demon, but he's really a man who is inspired by the devil. His description as having two horns like a lamb is interesting in that everywhere else the word lamb is used in the revelation, it refers to Jesus. He's the lamb of God. This has led some to speculate that this man will claim to be Jesus, or at least be like Jesus. And we know from our Lord that the beginning of the tribulation, in the first half, there's going to be a slew of false Christs who rise up. He is likely to be among them. He will emerge as the leader of a false religious system, of which we'll read more about in chapter 17 although claiming to be Christ or at least Christ-like, the second beast will speak like a dragon. That means his words obviously will be satanic. He'll be inspired by Satan. I wonder if that's why the world's best-selling dictation software is called Dragon. Any of you use Dragon dictation software? Why Dragon? I don't know, but it makes sense to me because this man will mimic the devil's words. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. In his presence means on behalf of, he has all the antichrist authority and makes things happen in his evil administration. He's his right-hand man, he's his go-to guy. One major thing that he makes happen is to cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the beast whose deadly wound was healed. Here's how he does it, verse 13, He performs great signs so that even fire comes down from heaven on the earth in sight of men. Performs is in a tense that indicates a repeated activity. He does sign after sign. Signs are designed to persuade mankind to follow the Antichrist. They point to him as the one to watch and to worship. One of the signs making fire come down from heaven is interesting. This can be understood in one of two ways. You might remember God's two witnesses who we studied a while back. When they're on the earth for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, one of their abilities to protect themselves is the ability to speak fire and destroy their enemies with fire. Now we have this second beast able to do something similar. Reminds me of the Old Testament uh, battle between Moses and the Egyptian magicians. Moses would come and he would do something. He would have Aaron throw down his rod, for example, and it would turn into a snake. And then the magicians would say, oh, we can do that. And they would throw their rods down. They would turn into snakes. Of course, Moses' snake ate their snakes. Uh, But it was kind of like a competition to say anything you can do, I can do better. So it's a mimicking of the work of God. This could also be a fire that counterfeits what happened on the day of Pentecost. You remember that story in the book of Acts where uh, to symbolize the coming of the Holy Spirit in power upon the disciples, tongues of fire hovered over them. It could be that there is a kind of false Pentecost that happens uh, as the uh, second beast seeks to empower the followers of the Antichrist. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. deceives means to lead astray. Miracle signs and wonders can validate the word of God or they can lead you astray. God's word must be used to judge their source and their message. And, And so just because a miracle takes place or a sign takes place or a wonder happens, it doesn't mean it's from God. It has to line up with the word of God, which None of these guys, uh, none of this guy's stuff does. The people on earth will be led to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. They won't simply worship an image to the beast. It says they're going to help make it. Reminds me of the Old Testament incident with the golden calf. Remember Moses had led the children of Israel out of the wilderness. He went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He's gone for a long time people grew restless. They said, hey, we don't know if Moses is ever coming back. (laughs) We need a God to worship. And so Aaron, Moses' brother said, well, bring me your jewelry and your gold. And he fashioned the golden calf and they began to worship that as their God. And so again, uh, somehow the people who will worship antichrist are going to participate in the creation of this image. A um, A lot of parallels here with what happened in the Old Testament we will see a couple of more as well. What exactly this image is, we're not told. It's gonna be something more than a mere likeness, but beyond that, I haven't a clue. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. John is careful not to say that he gives life to the image. Only God can give life. It's something miraculous, but also deceptive and false. Those who refuse to worship the beast are going to be killed. Notice that it is the image itself which causes the non-worshippers to be killed. Again, I can't fathom exactly what it means, but it's creepy. Just now I was flashing on the fact that in the, uh, New, Testament, or in the New Testament city of Smyrna, uh, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, once a year, uh, individual citizens had to pass in front of an image to Caesar, and pinch incense to him and declare that Caesar was Lord. And if they refused to do that, which the Smyrna Christians did, then they were persecuted. They couldn't uh, serve uh, in the guilds. And if you weren't a member of the guild, you couldn't do any work and things like that. So it could be a situation where people in some manner are made to come before an image or a facsimile of the image of the beast and swear allegiance to it. And if you don't, Uh, well, then you're going to be cut off from society and eventually hunted down and killed. Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Causes doesn't necessarily mean he forces them. In fact, we read later on, he doesn't force them. Here's how I see it. People will already be utilizing some sort of technology to conduct cashless business. We're pretty much there now the second beast will demand allegiance to the Antichrist by worshiping him in order for you to continue using that technology. It'll be a choice. No one ever will take the mark of the beast accidentally or without knowing what they're doing. In the very next chapter, chapter 14, we read that an angel, and I quote, said with a loud voice, if anyone worships a beast and his image and receives his mark on his hand or forehead, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so prior to whatever it means to worship the beast, to swear allegiance to him, there will be an angelic warning throughout the world that if you do this, you are unsavable and you are headed for perdition. You are headed for hell. So no one is going to wake up one morning and wish they hadn't gotten an electronic tattoo because they found out it's the mark of the beast. It's a willful decision. All in verse 16 of Revelation 13 means all types and classes of people, and they're described in contrasting pairs, small and great. It won't matter if you're educated or uneducated, white-collar, blue-collar, or no-collar if you watch Survivor this year. Those distinctions will still exist, but being great will not exempt you, nor will being small exclude you. Rich and poor. I guess there's always gonna be a disparity of wealth no matter what we try. The concept here is that wealth will be useless unless you are participating in the system. Free and slave, that sounds ominous, but a little while later we'll read about slavery and human trafficking in the tribulation. It's happening now as well. It's gonna worsen then. But even if you're a free individual, you can't avoid the decision to take the mark. John specifically mentions the right hand and the forehead. I see no reason why this should not be taken literally. And here's another interesting parallel with the Old Testament. You might remember in the book of Deuteronomy that God said to his people regarding his statutes, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This is why Orthodox Jews wear phylacteries, those small leather boxes with verses inside, tied around their foreheads or their forearms. So the mark of the beast is a mockery, it's a mimicking of this practice from the Old Testament. And so um, there's just a lot of deception going on. Verse 17, And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. We report quite frequently in our prophecy updates about the multiple technologies which exist right now that certainly could fit the description of a mark in or on your hand or forehead. Uh, I don't know which system will emerge or be something totally different, but this could take place. A person will not be able to conduct any business whatsoever without worshiping the Antichrist. Understand, you can't have cash in a mattress. You can't go off the grid and still just have cash because cash will be worthless. It'll be a strictly, from our point of view, electronic transaction. And if you're not on the grid, you'll be cut off from every service, from every um, uh, product. You won't be able to do anything. And so hopefully you're in your bunker by then and trying to ride things out. But of course, earlier in Revelation, we read that men try to hide in the caves and the dens of the earth, and the tribulation finds them there anyway. So there's no hiding from this. There's no getting away. There's no riding out the tribulation. Uh, I'm not against prepping for disasters, earthquakes, floods, you know, things like that. But there's no preparation for the tribulation. They're going to find you. Uh, if, If... the earthquakes don't get you, the demon armies are going to ferret you out and eat you. Uh, And so it's not a time to be playing around. Verse 18, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number six, six, six. Now in both Hebrew and Greek, each letter of the alphabet really does correspond to a number. The first nine letters correspond to one through nine, the next nine to 10 through 90, and the last letters in the hundreds. The number of a word or a name is the sum of the numerical equivalents of his letters. After all is said and done with people trying to figure out what this means, I found this by Jewish commentator David Stern, makes perfect biblical sense, and it's very simple. See if you don't follow this. The number could be entirely symbolic. The name of Messiah in Greek, Yesos, equals 888. That's a fact. Seven is regarded as the perfect number. Everybody agrees with that. Triple repetition symbolizes absoluteness, as in Isaiah where he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, Holy, holy, holy repeated means that God is absolutely holy, absolutely perfect. And so God is the 888 Therefore, 888 means that Yeshua is absolutely, ultimately beyond perfection. 666 means the beast in every respect falls short of perfection and is therefore absolutely and ultimately imperfect and evil. And so the, the, the most that the Antichrist can get to is 666, falls short of perfection, 7. God, of course, is beyond that and is perfect. I like that because it's simple and biblical. I'd add the observation that 666 is six, repeating three times. Now, that may not seem profound, but it's helpful because if you stick to the context, the Revelation discusses six world-ruling kingdoms up to and including the time the apostle John was writing. You have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are the kingdoms Daniel was interested in and the book of the Revelation is interested in. Historians like to point out that the Roman Empire has never been totally eradicated. So the next world-ruling empire is going to come out of Rome. It's going to be the future revived Roman Empire of the Tribulation. In that sense, it's a repeat of the sixth kingdom. It's a repeat of Rome. The revived Roman Empire of the Tribulation will then be taken over by Satan's beast. It is, in a sense, another repeat of the sixth kingdom. So Rome of the past... The revived Rome of the future and the revived Rome ruled by the Antichrist is the sixth world ruling kingdom repeating itself three times. Six, six, six. Mankind will never progress beyond kingdom number six. Seven is the number of completion. When Jesus returns, he will establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. That will be the true seventh kingdom. And so Satan has been trying to get to a seventh kingdom, but he can't get past the number six. He's always going to fall short of that perfection, obviously. Now, the threat of being totally cut off from society, unable to buy or sell or conduct any business, that's going to be a powerful incentive to take the mark of the beast. Most of the believers on the earth right now live under the constant threat of persecution, even death. How is Satan threatening you? You were probably threatened when you first got saved. You got saved as an adult. Your family and your friends threatened to to abandon you, perhaps. They certainly weren't excited about you getting saved. Your boss may have threatened to fire you. How many of you got pulled into the office, per se, and said, hey, you need to quit talking about Jesus Christ? If I hear another word about Jesus Christ, you're fired. Uh, And so, you know, and remember how excited you were when that happened? praise the Lord. Fire me, because I can't quit talking about the Lord. If you're not currently facing any threats, maybe you need to get back in the fight. If there's no reason for the devil to threaten you, uh, maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh and anew, uh, and and to be that, uh, that light and that witness again. Those of you who follow baseball have heard announcers compliment a pitcher whose stuff is wicked good by saying he's really dealing right now, and nobody can hit his stuff. Satan is wicked bad, and he's really dealing right now, but you don't want what he's offering, and you don't need to be intimidated by his threats. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All of us that are live here today, and that would be most of us, Your name is written in the book of life, but you must believe before you die in order for it to remain there. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not. If you're not, believe on the Lord and you will be saved. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died uh, in a sinless condition, rose from the dead so that he could take your sin and give you his righteousness so that you could live forever so that there will be no great white throne judgment for you, only a reward judgment before his uh, reward seat. That's where you want to be. That's the sweet spot. Whatever the devil has been offering you, whatever you're into, it's a trap, and and it's all going to come falling down on you. If you're not a Christian, take advantage of this time at the end of our service to do business with God. Come forward, pray with us, receive Jesus Christ.